This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So it's my pleasure tonight to introduce our topic, Rebooting Pelvic Health, and our three speakers who are listed here in the order in which they'll present. We have Nikita Shaw, Bevan Daniels, and Kavita Mishra. So I'm going to just tell you a little bit about each of them, and then they'll just come up and start teaching us all that they know. Well, not all of it, but certainly a little bit. (laughs) Dr. Nikita Shaw received her Doctor of Physical Therapy degree from Duke University. After completing her doctorate in physical therapy, she worked at a women's health physical therapy practice in Chicago, or in the Chicago area. She completed a year-long residency in orthopedic physical therapy at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston before joining us in San Francisco. She became board certified in orthopedics in 2015, that's in orthopedic physical therapy in 2015. And her current practice at the UCSF faculty practice combines her passions for orthopedics, pelvic health, and women's health. Our second speaker is Dr. Bevan Daniels, who received her doctorate in physical therapy from the UCSF San Francisco State University Joint Program in Physical Therapy in 2005. She is an American Physical Therapy Association Board Certified Orthopedic Clinical Specialist as well. Dr. Daniels has over 10 years of experience at the UCSF Physical Therapy Faculty Practice and has specialized in pelvic health for the last three years. In addition to her clinical practice, she serves as a classroom instructor for our physical therapy students in our physical therapy doctoral program. And to wrap up the evening, Dr. Kavita Mishra received her medical degree from UCSF in 2008. So she's our third speaker this evening. Dr. Mishra is Associate Clinical Professor at the UCSF Center for Urogynecology and Women's Pelvic Health. She's a member of the American Urogynecologic Society and Society of Gynecological Surgeons. She's trained in urogynecology, also called female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery, which is a mix of gynecology and urology, looking at pelvic floor disorders, problems with prolapse, support, urinary incontinence, and accidental bowel leakage. She has had three additional years of training to specialize in pelvic floor problems, completing a residency and a fellowship at Brown University. Dr. Mishra volunteers abroad in Rwanda to help women with traumatic deliveries who have severe urinary and fecal incontinence. So please join me in welcoming our three speakers to our presentation this evening. Thank you very much, Betty. Um, thank you all for coming out this evening. We're very excited about this topic, and we hope that it's uh, informative for you as well. Um, our idea behind this thought uh, in our collaboration with Dr. Michelle was we wanted to present to you the spectrum of care for pelvic health diagnoses. So we want you to know what pelvic health PT can do for you and also some medical surgical management options for the same diagnoses. So we're going to take you through anatomy. We're going to explain what the pelvic floor is. Uh, We're going to tell you what its function is, what happens when there's dysfunction, um, what pelvic health PT can do to help these diagnoses, and then ultimately, like I said, the medical surgical management. So for those of you that were here for the spine lecture last time, we're going just a little bit further south, and we're in the pelvis. So the sacrum connects to the two ilia and uh, connects in the front with the pubic, uh, at the pubic symphysis. And this makes up our pelvic cavity, which houses our reproductive organs. And it's kind of a powerhouse for dynamic stability with locomotion. So it really helps us transfer weight from our limbs up to our axial skeleton. 
Here's the difference between the male and the female pelvis. The female pelvis typically is wider. And um, what I wanted to uh, show you with the bottom picture is this is a bottom up view of the pelvis. And uh, you can see that the pelvic floor muscles are very similar between female and males, but just a little bit wider and a little bit narrower. Okay. And this picture is, again, a comparison between the female and male pelvis. And what I want you to take away is, while the reproductive organs may be different, the truss-like support, the red hammock on the bottom, is the same for both. So those are the pelvic floor muscles that we're going to talk about primarily today. This is a 3D model of the um, pelvis that I'm going to take you through. It's an illustration on a female pelvis. Um, in the next several slides, I'll take you through what muscles um, we're talking about today. So I wanted to start off with the piriformis muscle, which is a hip muscle. Um, it's found in your, glute, uh, in your uh, buttock and is uh, pretty well known to a lot of people. It's notoriously associated with sciatica. And I just wanted you to see how closely related it is to the pelvic floor right there. So in fact, in an intravaginal exam on a female, I can palpate this muscle. So it, the hip muscles are very closely related to the pelvic floor is what you should take away from this. Next up is our obturator internus. The arrow is pointing to it there, and it lies on the front of the pelvis. And it, again, is a hip muscle as well as a pelvic floor muscle. So if you can see in the second image, it kind of swings over, comes to our hip, and it helps stabilize the hip joint. So when we work the hip, we're working the pelvic floor. And we use, when we work the pelvic floor in our rehab, we use our hip muscles as well. So there can be, this can be, sometimes be the missing link in rehab when you're getting, you know, when there's a hip pain that perhaps isn't quite getting better based on what we're seeing, perhaps the pelvic floor is the missing piece. The coccygeus is the large muscle found bilaterally in the pelvic floor. Moving further down, we have our levator ani group of muscles, which are outlined there in blue. And the urogenital hiatus through which the male and female uh, urethra pass through. So the levator ani group is made up of three muscles. The um, purple one in the back there that's bilateral is the iliococcygeus. Then we have this large U-shaped muscle called the pubococcygeus. And another U-shaped muscle called the puborectalis that swings around our rectum. Okay? So you're starting to see how these can control bowel and bladder function. As we swing, up to, uh, swing down to the bottom-up view again, you'll see the perineal membrane lying on top. Between the perineal membrane and the muscles that we just went over, there's a, a few other muscles in there that we're not going to cover in depth. But you can see how the urethral orifice comes through here. And then this, in this female pelvis, uh, the other orifice is for the vaginal opening. Zooming out a little bit more, this is the superficial pelvic floor, okay? So again, a male and female comparison, and I want you to notice that the muscles are the same, so the ones that have been circled, the bulbospongiosis, ischiocavernosis, and superficial transfers are found in both, but perhaps the way they look are a little bit different. So here it wraps around the base of the penis, and here it wraps around the um, vaginal opening. That's the bulbospongiosis. So now that you have an understanding of the anatomy, um, you can start to guess what the function is. 
right? So you saw that they surround the sphincters, and so that's how they start to control sphincteric function of the bowel, the bladder. It controls sexual function. It certainly supports the viscera and the organs because remember that truss-like support, the little hammock sitting on the bottom. And it's the base of our core. So we hear the core time and time again. You've probably heard it in our spine lecture as well. But sometimes people forget to mention or forget to think about the pelvic floor as being the base of that core. So it's, we can't really miss this piece when we're doing core rehab. So it still consists of the abdominal, the transverse abdominus in the front, multifidi muscles in the back, and diaphragm on the top. And so this constitutes what we call our inner can. Okay, And so when we work to rehab the pelvic floor, we're also using the core muscles, we're using the diaphragm, we're coordinating the breathing to really rehab this and restore it to the best, po- best possible, in the best possible way. And it does maintain intrapelvic pressures, um, and you'll see this in the video that's in my next slide, and I'll just play it. So this is a functional MRI, and what it's showing is it's just an individual who's breathing, and essentially what it's showing is how those abdominal viscera are moving with the breath. So the top arrow is near the diaphragm right there, and the bottom arrow is at the pelvic floor. So you can see that it moves like a piston, a system that moves together, and that's why it's really important that we train these together. And so we do emphasize a lot on breathing coordination with our pelvic floor training. So what is pelvic floor dysfunction? It's really a wide range of things that can happen as a result of weakness in this area. Sometimes the muscles are too much on edge, sort of have that high tone. Sometimes they're low low tonicity. Um, We can have overactive muscles, underactive muscles. We can have a combination of both weak and tight muscles at the same time. And as a result of this, we can, it can then be related to incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse, and pelvic pain, which are the three big diagnoses that we're going to cover today. So what do pelvic health PTs uh, treat? This is a shortened list of um, what we see, and we see these regularly on a daily basis. I'm going to cover more of the incontinence um, uh, PT treatment, and then my colleague Bevan is going to go into pelvic organ prolapse and pelvic pain as well. So types of incontinence. Stress incontinence is probably the big one that most of you have heard of. It's the one I cough and I leak, I sneeze and I leak, I laugh really hard and I leak my pants a little bit. Um, That's when there's increased intra-abdominal force and stress from above and the urethral pressure isn't strong enough to hold the urine in. And that's why we leak. Okay. The other big type is urge incontinence. This is the one that we call the key in the door. This is the one where you're about to get home and you leak in your pants or you're on the way to the bathroom and it happens. Or, um, you know, running water may be a trigger. So there's certainly a different mechanism than the stress incontinence. And then there's the mixed incontinence, which is also a lot of what we see where you have some features of the stress incontinence and some features of our urge incontinence. There's also another type called overflow that we're not going to go into depth uh, with today. So this is a big issue, and this is from a CDC study that I pulled, and this includes both males and females. The cost of this problem is $19.5 billion. And a majority, this really struck me, a majority of these costs, 50 to 75% of these costs are just for routine care. We're spending this money on pads, on protection, on laundry. This is something we can easily drive down with treatment. And in general, this is underreported. So 
you know, even the prevalence studies that we have out there are probably underreporting what's really going on. People don't seek treatment for this. Um, and so it's one of those that, again, goes into the underreported um, piece that I talked about. It's certainly far more prevalent, prevalent in women than it is in men. And this is because we have childbirth and menopause as hallmarks in our lifetime. Uh, some more support. Um, the American College of Gynecology published this in 2016. And they talk about 25% of young women having incontinence. 44 to 57% of middle-aged and postmenopausal women, we're talking about half of the women having incontinence, 75% of older women. And urinary incontinence, you know, it really leads to a sequelae of things as a result of that because you have the, the incontinence, it leads to some skin you know, infection, it leads to skin problems like dermatitis, you're rushing in the middle of the night to make it to the bathroom, you fall, and then it has its own sequence of events following that. So it really is a big burden once you sort of, once you have it. And the last piece here, this is also very interesting to me, is that 6% of admissions to nursing homes uh, is when the family find it too difficult to perform incontinence care. So if we can treat this, you know, I think families would feel more confident about taking care of their family members, or if you as individuals have these problems, remember that there is treatment and there is something that we can do to uh, decrease the burden of this problem. So I wanted to point out two big things with male incontinence. One is with um, the, which I'm actually the bottom one, one is with the enlarged prostate or benign prostatic hyperplasia. Urge incontinence is something that men face. And so it's basically with the enlarged prostate putting weight on the bladder, it leads to the frequency and then sometimes can lead to the urge, urge incontinence related to it. The second thing is with prostate surgery. So we do know that following a radical prostatectomy, you can lose urine control, and it can be pretty severe. But the good news is when prehab is done, or when you do pelvic floor muscle training prior to having the uh, prostate surgery, you can actually get the urine control back much faster, and the severity of the inter uh, incontinence is significantly lower. Okay, Same muscles, male and female, right? So the PT treatment, what we've done is categorize our treatment slides into behavioral, pelvic floor muscle training, and orthopedic. Behavioral really meaning more patient education points. Uh, pelvic floor muscle training, sort of the meat and potatoes of our exercise-based um, interventions. And then orthopedic is more when I talk about the hip muscles on the outside, the core, the inner thighs, all of those things that I uh, was talking about in the slides prior. So some behavioral tricks that we... Um, educate people on. So one of the big things, this is certainly more pertinent to those that have urgent continence, have uh, urgency, frequency symptoms. Um, we educate them on bladder irritants. And sort of the bad guys are the big four or five up here. Okay. So in, these are known bladder irritants, so it's going to increase the urgency and the frequency symptoms. I do want to point out that although tomatoes are on here, or citrus foods, it doesn't mean don't eat them at all. But what we're trying to show you is, if you're, what we're having you do is identify excess um, in your diet and make modifications accordingly to help your symptoms. The second thing, uh, somebody coined this term, and it's called the NAC. Essentially, what we're teaching in this is uh, we want you to learn how to use your pelvic floor muscles 
during that activity that you're having the leakage with. So let's say, for example, it's the sneeze. And what was, be- what was happening regularly or ordinarily in a normal pelvic floor is that the pelvic floor automatically has a little bit of a squeeze to protect that leakage from happening. But we can lose this automated function, and so we want to retrain it. We're waking it back up. We're doing it as a repetition so that it kickstarts it back up again. So for those that are having incontinence with coughing, I'll tell them to, when they can predict, go ahead and squeeze before you cough. Okay? So let's practice, actually. Um, So what I want you to do, we're going to try to practice the knack that I just explained. And so in this part, what I'd like you to do is, first off, just go ahead and give, just go ahead and do a big cough. (laughs) So some of you, or most of you might have felt a little bit of downward pressure towards the pelvic floor. Okay? You can try it again. Okay? You may or may not feel it, but for those that have issues, they can feel it a little bit more. And now I want you to try to squeeze the pelvic floor muscles as if you're trying to shut off those sphincters, as if you're trying to stop the flow of urine or stop the passive gas. And you're going to lift up those muscles as if you're bringing them up towards the belly button like an elevator. So remember that hammock-like bottom? You're trying to squeeze and lift at the same time. Okay. So when you think you've got it, go ahead and try coughing again. And what you want to notice with that is typically that downward pressure that perhaps you were feeling is a little bit lessened because of the bracing. that. And everybody's in a coughing spell now. Um, perhaps the downward pressure that you just felt was a little bit lower, right? And of course, this is different. We're training people. It depends on what's going on with you. But I just wanted to illustrate how that pelvic floor can kind of brace and help you with that, uh, with the incontinence. So moving back to the behavioral education, um, the other big thing, this is urge suppression that we discuss, again, primarily with our urge patients, so urgency and urge-related incontinence. I did want to mention that normal bladder habits are approximately every two to four hours avoiding or urination uh, during the day and no nocturia. There are situations in which it's different for people. Of course, fluid intake you know, changes things. So we typically have our patients fill out a bladder diary. And so that tells us their specific habits of what they're drinking, when they're going to the bathroom, et cetera, and we can individualize the program for them. However, let's take my patient who has urge, who's perhaps wanting to go to the bathroom or has a sense of urge every 15 minutes. And I know that that's abnormal, right? I'm going to teach them some strategies. And what I try to explain is with this sort of bladder retraining that we're doing, it really is like disciplining a badly behaved child. It takes time, several weeks, and you kind of have to stick to it to get it to uh, be responsive. Okay, so it's a lot of mind over bladder strategy. And what you want to do is think about some of the strategies are to sit down if you're feeling that strong urge. So if you're moving around, it's going to be worse. Apply some pressure to the perineal area, depending on the social situation you're in. Uh, Thinking of mental distraction techniques, counting down from 100 by 7s. Distractions, occupy yourself with something, it works. Um, performing Kegels to help inhibit the bladder urge. So Kegels for urge. I'm just going to stop here a second and explain why this, why this makes sense. So if you can imagine that the bladder and the pelvic floor work antagonistically, the bladder, when it squeezes, the pelvic floor has to relax in order for you to urinate, right? So the opposite is also true where if you squeeze the pelvic floor, through an inhibitory loop that lies between the pelvic floor and the bladder, it signals the bladder to relax and calm down. 
right? So that urge sensation that you're feeling, we can influence it through the pelvic floor muscle training. And then walking slowly to the bathroom and remembering that going to the bathroom is not an emergency. So again, it takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. It is a retraining. We put people on sometimes, you know, like a timed voiding, tell them to only go, your goal is to go after 45 minutes or the goal is to go after an hour. So you're really going by the clock and you're really retraining that bladder. Pelvic floor muscle training. So this kind of gets, uh, like I said, a little bit more specific into um, PT-specific, exercise-specific interventions that we do. So the support for this. um, There's a Cochrane review from 2014 that shows positive effects demonstrated with pelvic floor muscle training. In This is a study in women with both stress incontinence and urge incontinence. There's a decreased frequency and amount of leaking, improved quality of life. And in that study, it suggested somewhere between 35 to 80 reps per day to achieve this. Okay, this, the, the dosage varies, and we do individualize our dosage per the patient. So for some patients, you know, too much is not good. For some patients, you've got to start a little bit uh, slower, okay? Uh, and some more support. The uh, American College of Gynecology uh, recommends uh, pelvic floor muscle training for anyone with uh, stress incontinence and mixed in, uh, urinary incontinence. And for mild stress incontinence, your success rate is about 75 to 80%. So it really works. That's nice when, that, when it's backed up with the research. And then uh, they make a comment again about men who develop urinary incontinence following prostate surgery and how the pelvic floor muscle training prior can help with the urine control after. So what do we do when we do pelvic floor muscle training? Now, you've heard the word Kegel, pelvic floor muscle training, pelvic floor contraction. So it's interchangeable. But when I say pelvic floor muscle training, what we're getting at is really the specifics of how we train the pelvic floor. Okay, so it's, a, it's the proper technique is what I'm referring to. And remember I talked about the lifting right now when you practice versus just a clamping. So it's not a clamping, it's that entire bowl of muscles sort of lifting as you, as you squeeze. And then the coordination with the breathing, we saw that in the video and how important it is. Isolating it. A lot of times people are compensating through the glutes or they're squeezing their abdominals and they're not really getting anything in the pelvic floor. Dosage, like I said, we individualize that. Positioning sometimes changes depending on your diagnosis. And then equipment. We use electrical stimulation. We use biofeedback. So we have some tools to help us um, help you achieve that goal. So on the note of biofeedback, what is biofeedback? You may have heard this. What it is is basically a visual way for you to get a little bit more feedback for that muscle training. So we've sometimes used biofeedback in, uh, on other muscles as well. And the concept is, in our clinic, we, we put little electrodes um, externally, and it picks up your muscle activity. You're connected to the software on the computer, and you get to see your graph moving up and down as you squeeze and as you relax, and as you squeeze and as you relax. Okay? And this has been found in the Cochrane Review to be an important adjunct to pelvic floor muscle training. The picture there on the bottom right is our, for our millennial, our smartphone-connected biofeedback um, that's also available now. Okay? So manual therapy. This is also a big thing uh, or a big part of what physical therapists do. And you may ask the question, why would you stretch or work on those muscles when I'm leaking, Right? Because you would think, I need the pelvic floor muscle training. I need to get stronger in here. Well, think back to when I said you could have overactive muscles, you could have underactive, you could have a combination. So when we do our exam, you know, it's very normal for us to find weak and tight muscles at the same time. So if you take my example, so imagine a bicep, 
Okay. And if it came, if I came in like this and you gave me a bicep curl and I did bicep curls all day, I do my 80 bicep curls a day, but nothing's changing right? Because it's inefficient unless you restore the length of the muscle in that proper length tension relationship, then my bicep curls are going to be much more efficient. So it's not unusual for us. And, you know, people with incontinence, sometimes they've been guarding so hard with those muscles that they actually end up with those, you know, like I said, the restricted sort of tighter muscles. So we have to sometimes stretch before we can get onto the strengthening program so that it's much more efficient. And then lastly, um, orthopedic uh, concerns. So when I say that, um, I'm talking about those hip muscles, the inner thigh muscles, which are the adductors and the core. Uh, There's a study out that shows hip external rotator strengthening, which is the clamshell maneuver this lady is doing, um, increases, this was a female study, increases uh, female vaginal squeeze pressure. So your strength is better when you do hip strengthening. And hopefully that makes sense now with that pelvic floor anatomy that I was talking about. So we certainly harness these muscles to help us kickstart the pelvic floor as well. So for the very weak pelvic floor, I might start with some glute stuff and some adductor or inner thigh stuff to help boost that pelvic floor. The adductors or the inner thighs, you've seen people when they want to use a restroom really bad and they cross their legs... And that's because our inner thigh muscles are assisters. Again, they're boosting or keeping on that pelvic floor. Okay? And core, you saw in the video, is very much related. So we want that inner can, that whole pressure system, to be working appropriately um, so that you're not having too much pressure from the top down and then causing the leakage. So I'm going to pass it over to Bevan, but I do want to uh, say in conclusion to my section that you you saw that incontinence increases typically with age but I want you to know that you can be continent at any age. Okay, so don't give up hope, and uh, definitely come see us if we can help you. Thanks. All right, thank you all for being here. And Nikita just went through stress and urge-type urinary incontinence, and I'll be going over pelvic organ prolapse. Pelvic organ prolapse is occurs when there is um, when one of the organs descends from its normal position and pushes into the vaginal wall and this occurs not because of the weight of the organ but because of a loss of support from the pelvic floor muscles and the surrounding connective tissue so um, in this image um, you can see the bladder in the front the rectum posteriorly You can see where the uterus should be, uh, but instead it has descended into the vaginal canal. And what's illustrated here is a central prolapse, which is the uterus uh, falling into the canal. There can also be an anterior wall descent or prolapse, which is typically the bladder descending. Or there can be a posterior wall descent, um, which is the rectum Uh, descending into the vaginal wall. And pelvic organ prolapse is staged to determine the severity. And Dr. Mishra will talk about this um, as well. And the urogynecologists do a very specific and thorough um, grading. Um, In physical therapy, we do a simpler version. Um, We have our patients bear down during the examination and we'll visualize the descent, the amount of vaginal wall descent. Um, So in this, you can see here, um, here's the uterus, um, here's the hymen here, 
and or hymenal remnants. And a stage three, you can see there's descent below the uh, hymen level. Um, a stage two in yellow here is typically where patients start to have symptoms of the prolapse. The prevalence of vaginal or pelvic organ prolapse 40% of women over the age of 50 have uh, prolapse. Another study looked at several hundred women who came in for their annual OBGYN visit, and they assessed for prolapse, and they found a prevalence of 94%. Um, this included stage 1 asymptomatic cases as well. The symptoms of pelvic organ prolapse can include a sensation of vaginal bulge or pressure vaginally that gets worse as the day progresses and with physical activity. Um, there can be bladder or bowel dysfunction, depending on the type of prolapse. So if there is a posterior wall uh, prolapse where the rectum is pushing into the vaginal wall, uh, there can be difficulty with bowel movement. Um, uh, complete evacuation. There can be back pain because of the loss of um, stability for the trunk and spine. Um, and there can be dyspareunia, which is pain uh, with intercourse. Um, the risk factors, not surprisingly, are uh, pregnancy and childbirth, um, increasing age and a family history of prolapse, also, obesity, heavy lifting, um, and constipation can play a role, as well as uh, previous pelvic surgery. So I included this for just a fun fact here. Um, so more ancient pelvic organ prolapse treatment. One treatment was uh, fumigation, and they would put vile-smelling things by the woman's pelvis and beautiful, nice-smelling things by her head, assuming the tissue would naturally migrate upward. Um, or, as you can see here, a woman being suspended um, upside down to treat the prolapse. Thankfully, we have more modern <laughs> approaches now. So I'm going to first go through behavioral approaches that we use in physical therapy. Um, we first talk to our patients about what not to do because we don't want to increase intra-abdominal pressure, which worsens the prolapse. So we talk to our patients about avoiding certain exercises like a full sit-up or even crunches, um, planks, jumping, heavy lifting, and certainly avoiding straining while having, uh, trying to have a bowel movement. Um, so for patients who do have constipation issues, we'll talk about things they can do to mitigate this. So one example is using a footstool under one's feet when um, having, trying to have a bowel movement. This can change the uh, position of the rectum so it's easier to avoid. Also, performing uh, the knack, as Nikita introduced, um, contracting the pelvic floor muscles when you cough can decrease that downward pressure on the pelvic um, floor and organs. So um, in terms of specific pelvic floor muscle training, uh, this study looked at over 500 women with pelvic organ prolapse, and they found there was a significant reduction in symptoms of prolapse with pelvic floor muscle strengthening or Kegel exercises. Um, now, they did not find there was a significant improvement in the severity of the prolapse. So women um, in this study, they felt better, but when they 
um, did bearing down um, during an exam, they still had the same descent um, of the vaginal wall. And this is not surprising. Um, in this study, they uh, used very high repetition of contractions. They actually did over 100 fast contractions that were one second long and 30 um, longer 10-second contractions. Um, and so we don't have an exact dosage that's the um, correct amount for um, improving prolapse. As Nikita pointed out, we do dose depending on what we find in the examination, but this does indicate that high repetitions um, is helpful or can be necessary. Um, we do work on positioning for um, uh, doing the pelvic floor exercises. So if we assess uh, a woman um, in, the, um, in physical therapy and they have a hard time doing a pelvic floor contraction lying on their back, we may actually prop something under their pelvis. So gravity is assisting when they do the contraction. And as they get stronger, then we can remove the bolster, then they can progress to sitting and ultimately standing. Um, we also will encourage women to do contractions during their daily life as they sit up or as they um, stand from sitting or um, sit back down um, or while lifting, those sorts of activities. And as Nikita pointed out, we work on coordinating the contraction with the exhalation. So we'll inhale to prepare, do the contraction on the exhalation um, to maximize the um, correct contraction. In terms of orthopedic intervention, um, this is the same slide that you saw with Nikita's presentation, so the same thing applies. The pelvic floor muscles do not work in isolation. It's helpful to augment their, um, the pelvic floor strength with utilizing the adductors, uh, the gluteal muscles, and the lower abdominals. So I'm going to shift gears now and talk about pelvic pain. This is a very broad topic and includes many different diagnoses. I'm not going to go through each particular diagnosis. Probably the most common diagnosis that we um, see in pelvic physical therapy is dyspareunia, which is pain with uh, intercourse, sexual intercourse. Pelvic pain is defined as pain that occurs below the umbilicus. So this includes lower abdominal pain, groin pain, vaginal, rectal, penile pain. And chronic pelvic pain is six months duration or longer. One study found that of women who have chronic pelvic pain, 60% also presented with a psychological disorder, whether that's depression or anxiety. Um, those two were included. Um, also disturbed sleep quality, uh, frequent absence from work, and fertility can be impacted as well. The prevalence of chronic pelvic pain among women is 20%, and among men is 10%. And rather startling statistic is close to 40% of women who suffer from chronic vulvar pain do not seek medical treatment. So there are multiple causes, potential causes of pelvic pain. And this slide is to illustrate these potential causes. For example, a gynecologic cause can be endometriosis, which is um, a condition where uterine uh, tissue grows outside of the uterus and can cause quite severe uh, cyclical pelvic pain. 
There can be urologic causes, including uh, overactive bladder or for males, prostatitis. Uh, in terms of musculoskeletal causes of pain, for example, a fall on one's tailbone can jar the pelvis um, to be in an um, asymmetrical position right to left, and that can cause uh, pain in the pelvic floor muscles or from the pelvic floor muscles. Um, for example, I worked with a young woman in her late 20s, and she came to me because of pain with intercourse. And she was confused because she had been with the same partner. She didn't have pain previously, but then started to have pain. And we discovered in the interview that she had, around the time that this pain started, she had been in a skiing accident where she fell on her tailbone. So it was simply a musculoskeletal issue um, that caused the pain. Psychosocial issues can also cause pelvic pain, prolonged stress uh, we can carry in our pelvic floor, um, and also uh, prior abuse can, uh, is correlated with pelvic pain. This uh, slide is to illustrate that, again, there can be these multiple causes of pelvic pain, but the end result is the same in that there is pelvic floor muscle dysfunction. And in the case of pelvic pain, that dysfunction is hypertonicity, meaning the muscles are, are too active, too um, tight, um, even at rest. Um, now, in the case of, say, for example, a woman who has endometriosis, um, she will be seeing her gynecologist. She should be seeing her gynecologist to receive medical and potentially surgical management of this disease. But also, she should be seeing her pelvic floor physical therapist because we can address the muscular component of her pain um, that has resulted from years of uh, this condition. Um, now, in another scenario, a patient may feel that they have symptoms of a urinary tract infection. They can have burning with urination, frequent urination, but when they're tested for an infection, it's actually negative, and this may happen multiple times, um, and this can occur for women, women and for men. And in that scenario, it's actually their pelvic floor muscles that are dysfunctional and causing those symptoms. So I'm going to go through now... Uh, the treatment for pelvic uh, pain. In terms of behavioral recommendations, we always ask patients with pelvic pain if they have constipation. Uh, patients with chronic pelvic pain have a higher rate of uh, constipation compared to the um, general population. And constipation can make pelvic pain worse. You can imagine that continual bearing down, straining, um, can make the pelvic floor muscles more um, in more spasm. So we go over toileting position. I already showed you this image. This is the squatty potty. Some of you may have heard of this a particular uh, stool that is contoured with the toilet. Um, uh, we go over adequate water and fiber intake, and also an abdominal massage that is done along the course of the colon can be helpful at improving uh, constipation and the frequency of bowel movements. 
Um, for women who are postpartum or going through menopause or postmenopausal, there um, can be changes in the vaginal tissues related to a decrease in estrogen. So the tissues can be more um, thin, um, more atrophied, um, more dry. Uh, they can be more um, easily irritated or susceptible to infection. So um, their doctor may prescribe vaginal estrogen, um, and from our perspective, we can go over some strategies to improve the health of their vulvar tissues. So avoiding uh, scented, perfumed products, rinsing the vulva with water um, after urination, after intercourse. Um, a water-based lubricant without glycerin can be helpful. Avoiding tight clothing, uh, bicycle riding, you know, that direct pressure on the perineum. And so in terms of pelvic floor muscle training, um, a study that looked at both men and women with chronic pelvic pain, they found that um, they, people with chronic pain are not able to relax their pelvic floor muscles well. And so this is a very important focus for us in pelvic um, physical therapy. So we go over um, diaphragmatic breathing is one strategy to help relax the pelvic floor. As Nikita showed you, when we inhale, the diaphragm lowers and the pelvic floor also lowers. So this is a way to restore mobility um, to the pelvic floor. We also can show stretches, so the one on the far left. Um, now, some people, this is going to be hard for their knees and hips and ankles, so there are other strategies, such as this cat-cow, which is the image in the middle. Um, certain yoga positions like this can be helpful as well. So we're going to practice again. Um, so this time we're going to focus on the relaxation. So I'll have everyone scoot their bottom all the way back in the chair. It's important to be in good position when you do pelvic floor um, work. So this time I'm going to have you imagine, again, um, the pelvic floor. And we're going to, um, as Nikita said, we're going to imagine the pelvic floor like an elevator. So we're going to go up to the first. Go ahead and squeeze and lift your pelvic floor up to the first, second, third, and fourth floor. And now I want you to think of the relaxation. So you're going to bring the elevator back down to the ground floor. And to do this, there's a couple images you can have in mind. So you can imagine the pubic bone in the front and the tailbone behind separating from each other. You can also imagine your sit bones that you're sitting on widening um, as well. And in the clinic, we go through different visual images, like a flower opening. There are different images that we use. Okay, so um, Nikita talked to you about biofeedback for strengthening your muscles. Um, we can also use it for training relaxation of the pelvic floor muscles. So we would set up the sensors on the skin, and so the patient can see the, uh, her muscle um, or his muscle activity at rest. And if it's too high, if it's elevated, we use different strategies to um, train the muscles to relax better. And again, this can be belly, uh, belly breathing, um, different visualizations. Uh, there's some thought that low tone sounds can also be of assistance. Um, and once uh, people can adequately relax their muscles, then we also start working on the contraction as well so they can learn that full mobility of their muscle, both the relaxation and the contraction. 
So now I'm going to talk about some of the manual therapy, the hands-on therapy that we do for patients with pelvic pain. And when we do the hands-on work, we're addressing uh, what's called myofascial tissue. And myo refers to the muscle, fascia to the connective tissue around the muscle. So the white tissue you can see is the fascia and then, um, of course, the, the muscle behind that. And if there's dysfunction in the myofascial tissue, um, a trigger point can, um, can develop. And a trigger point is a hyper-irritable area in the fascia associated with taut muscle fibers underneath. And typically there's, a, um, there's pain at the trigger point locally, but also referred pain. And just to show you, this bottom illustration is showing um, if there's a trigger point in the obturator internus, one of the deep pelvic floor muscles, there's pain in the tailbone, but also down the back of the leg. So um, that's very similar to sciatica pain. So some patients who think they may have sciatica, but they're not getting better, they may actually have a pelvic floor um, issue. So in the, when we examine um, our patients, um, we assess internally for um, trigger points. Um, we also assess for tender points, which is basically tenderness to touch um, without the referred uh, symptoms. And if we find these trigger points or these tender points, we treat that. Um, and it's often done internally, um, vaginally, or rectally, depending on uh, the muscle that we're working on. And certain muscles can also be treated externally as well. And a trigger point release is typically takes about 90 seconds for the muscle um, and the fascia to uh, release. Um, we also train our patients how to um, do self-treatment. So if the problem is more of the superficial layer, they can actually use their own finger to help release the tension in the, um, the fascia. Um, if it's the deeper layer, um, we often may recommend dilators. So you can see a set here um, in purple. And um, the dilators come in sets typically. The smallest size is typically the size of an index finger and then increases in size. And the dilators, again, can be used for actively releasing the tissue that's tight by pressing on the uh, area that needs to be released, or it can be used passively where the dilator is inserted and kept there for 10 to 15 minutes for passive stretching, and as that improves, the size of the dilator can increase. Um, the research shows that if this is done about 10 to 15 minutes a few times a week, this can reduce pain with intercourse. Um, now, for individuals that are trans-female, so those who have transitioned from male to female and have a neo-vagina, the dilation process is much more involved. So the first year after their uh, gender affirmation surgery, they'll need to dilate their neo-vagina for um, uh, close to an hour um, every day um, during that first year. And that can t um, taper off later, but um, it's much more involved if they want to avoid the neovagina closing in. Um, lastly, I just want to go over orthopedic intervention for pelvic pain. 
Um, previously, we talked about how when we're trying to activate um, and strengthen the pelvic floor, we utilize the um, adductor muscles, the gluteal muscles. We can also utilize these muscles to help facilitate lengthening of the pelvic floor. So these are examples of common stretches that we will give to patients with pelvic pain, um, and we'll assign certain stretches depending on what we find during the examination of each person. But these are common examples. Um, we also, uh, importantly, assess posture. As physical therapists, of course, we always look at posture, but um, specifically to the pelvic floor, um, the position of the pelvis has a direct impact on the pelvic floor. So, for example, um, this figure on the left in this more slumped position, this is going to have the effect of shortening her pelvic floor muscles and can make it harder for the muscles to fully lengthen. Um, one other very important uh, component of our orthopedic examination for patients with pelvic pain is looking at their pelvic symmetry. So we look at the height of the iliac crest, which is this area right at the top of the pelvic bone. And one study looked at patients, both men and women, with chronic pelvic pain, and they found they had a much higher um, incidence of asymmetry in their pelvic height compared to the general population. So this is something we always look at and will treat, uh, because as you can imagine, if there's an asymmetry in that height, it's going to affect their pelvic floor muscles. And lastly, we also do manual therapy on the muscles and tissues around, um, not directly at the pelvic floor, but in the surrounding area. Um, this sweater image is just to illustrate that our fascial system is somewhat like a bodysuit that's all connected. So if you can imagine if there's a tight area where the fabric is um, adhesed, that's going to affect the neighboring areas as well. So we often are doing manual therapy to the abdominal wall, to the um, deep hip muscles like the psoas, the glutes, and the spine. And lastly, I want to finish on the point that there's not one gold standard treatment to treat pelvic pain in terms of physical therapy. The studies show that what's called a multimodal approach is what's most beneficial. So a program that includes patient education, biofeedback, hands-on work, dilators is most beneficial. So I'm going to finish here and hand over the microphone to Dr. Kavita Mishra. Um, and she is a female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery specialist here at UCSF. Nikita and I are thrilled that she could collaborate with us for this presentation. And she's going to go over the medical surgical management of incontinence, prolapse, and pelvic pain. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I feel like I learned a lot just listening to Nikita and Bevan, and it reminded me to do my Kegels during that talk, so that was good. Um, I do want to briefly go over the medical and surgical uh, management strategies for some of these problems, but also give you all a, a good opportunity to ask some questions. Um, as a reminder, again, the bladder has two main functions, which is to so store our urine but also to void upon command. Um, to be able to do that, we have to coordinate both muscles and nerve systems. Um, as um, 
uh, a reminder, um, the pelvic floor has to relax as the bladder contracts to be able to void efficiently. To store our urine, we also have to have a bladder that expands while the pelvic floor um, helps maintain our continence. We have additional muscles in the urethra to keep us continent. Um, and uh, I always like to talk about flight or fight, fight or flight response because this helps us kind of understand the nerves that um, help us urinate and hold our urine. Um, so as a reminder, if we see a tiger, we have the option to run um, or sometimes we can be frozen in space. When we're frozen in space, that's often the parasympathetic response of our nerves that make it so that we can't move. When we are running away from the tiger, that's our sympathetic response telling us to run. And the balance of these two systems are always at play in multiple organs in our body, and they're very much at play in the bladder. Um, so when you have an increase of sympathetic energy, either from activating your pelvic floor or running or doing an activity, that sends a feedback to our bladder, do not go right now, I'm not ready to urinate. On the other hand, when we are ready, the parasympathetic response, the nerves kick in, telling our bladder it's okay to go right now, um, and our muscles relax in that moment. So that's kind of how that works briefly. Um, this is an interesting pie chart to, to remind us that uh, we can talk about each of the types of incontinence separately, but a good number of people have both mixed, uh, both uh, stress incontinence and urge incontinence. And we have ways to, to treat each of these problems either separately or together. Overflow incontinence um, is a problem that can happen when the outlet of the bladder is constricted in some way. So for women, sometimes it's when prolapse occurs and it, it creates a kink on the urethra so that the urethra is not in the right position and is essentially cut off so that when someone tries to avoid the urethra is unable to open and allow urine to escape and then urine will uh, back up over time. In men, this can happen also with um, with uh, enlarged prostate, where that constricts the bladder opening um, and make it difficult to urinate effectively, so that then urine can also back up into the bladder, leading to fullness and incomplete emptying. Functional incontinence is when someone's essentially not able to reach the bathroom in time. And so they have incontinence episodes um, because they're not able to make it due to uh, inability getting out of bed or mobility concerns, things like that. We can do some testing if a patient has trouble figuring out which type of incontinence they're having based on their symptoms or if, they, um, or if there's any confusion as to what's going on. So a urodynamic test is essentially what, what you see on the side there. We fill the bladder with sterile water and the, uh, use tiny catheters to do that. Those tiny catheters have little pressure sensors at the end of them, and it's essentially connected to a computer so that as the bladder bladder is filling, we can see what pressures are being generated by the bladder themselves. So we'll get a chart that kind of looks like this, where um, we'll sense 
Uh, we'll see what the pressure is being created in the bladder. We'll also have a sensor for abdominal pressure. And then here's the part that we're really looking at, what pressures are being generated by the bladder themselves. So in this test, um, we're having a patient cough, which is seen as a spike in pressure uh, both in the bladder and the abdomen. And a nurse will see that urine escapes from the urethra. Um, so that's an example of stress incontinence. When someone coughs and we see the leakage immediately. In this chart, a patient coughs, we don't see a leak, but later as the bladder is still filling, we'll see a bladder contraction without the patient's control. And so that is an example of the urgency or the, the bladder spasm re, uh, related to overactive bladder. Now, for stress incontinence, in addition to pelvic floor physical therapy, which I strongly recommend for patients, um, there has been improvement in uh, stress incontinence symptoms when patients um, can lose weight if they are overweight. Cutting down on tobacco also helps. Um, and then using physical things to help the support of the bladder and the urethra. So one option is an incontinence dish, which um, looks something like this. It's actually flexible, and so a patient can actually fold it, put it in the vagina, and then the knob here will sit underneath the urethra and the bladder neck so that when someone coughs or sneezes, there's a support there to prevent urine from escaping. Most of the problem with stress incontinence is with more the urethra than the bladder and the supports around the urethra. So this is what this is trying to restore. There are things such as urethral plugs which are, have fallen out of favor, mostly because they can be uncomfortable for patients. <clears throat> Here's a study demonstrating that when patients have more than a 5% weight loss or about 30 pounds, they can significantly reduce the number of stress incontinence episodes that they have in a day. So this is another good motivator for weight loss um, and, of course, is an effective therapy. Finally, there are different surgeries that we can do for stress incontinence. The most common procedure currently is something called the sling. Um, this is essentially a, a piece of uh, mesh tape that's placed underneath the urethra to kind of create a permanent support underneath the urethra. There are other surgeries such as the birch procedure, which is an older surgery that now um, isn't as effective and also um, has a little bit more higher blood loss um, and uh, post-operative complications, so it's done less often. But it is a good way to manage the problem if someone has had multiple prior slings or doesn't desire a foreign material. Um, and then this is an image of how the sling is placed, um, placing slings behind the pubic bone on both sides of the urethra. This uh, here is an image of the stitches required to be placed for the birch procedure. This is also creating support around the urethra, but requires us to do a surgery behind the pubic bone, so it's a little bit bigger and, and from the abdomen. And then finally, we can also inject a material, little, little tiny calcium beads around the urethra to kind of increase the pressure that's in the urethra and, and prevent leakage with coughing. Um, this is where the urethral bulking agent is placed. 
Okay. This is a procedure that is effective but wears out over time. So it'll last about one or two years on average for patients and is only about 60 to 70% effective. It's an office-based procedure, so it's a little bit easier for many patients to undergo. I want to talk about the sling in more depth because this is probably the procedure more patients have heard of. Um, uh, oftentimes you'll hear people talk about a bladder lift or a bladder sling. Unfortunately, those terms are really hard to understand exactly what happened during a surgery. Um, so to be a little bit more specific about it, this is um, called a tension-free vaginal tape or a sling. Um, it's placed, again, underneath the urethra, behind the pubic bone, kind of on both sides of the bladder. Um, it's made of a material that's often used um, for uh, abdominal hernias or, or inguinal hernias, um, and it's an inert material, meaning it does not usually get infected. It's, the procedure itself is about 85 to 90% effective, and it's a permanent treatment. There are very few um, long-term complications. The biggest thing is that at 10% of people may have a little bit more urgency, um, needing to go to the bathroom more frequently because these um, arms of the sling are going so close to the urethra. Um, mesh complications, like having trouble healing um, around the mesh, are actually rare. They're only about 3% of people. And it's usually not because the mesh has moved and gone into a different organ, but because uh, the skin uh, uh, around the placement of the mesh um, has not healed well. And so the mesh is then peeking through. Um, this is, again, a 30-minute outpatient surgery with minimal blood loss, so it's kind of the gold standard for stress incontinence if we're going to do a surgical procedure. The FDA did come out with a warning in 2014 about vaginal mesh. They specifically stated it does not apply to slings. So I want to make sure that's clear because so many people get confused about what vaginal mesh is. Um, so what the FDA was warning against is larger pieces of mesh placed for prolapse, so placed for a very different problem in a very different part of the vagina. And so they later came out clarifying that we really wanted to make Make sure that people didn't confuse our warning to apply to slings, which is still the gold standard for stress incontinence. Um, so let's shift gears for urgent incontinence. So urgency symptoms can be really bothersome for patients. Patients find significant um, difficulty with going about their daily life if they are going to the bathroom every 30 minutes during the day and every hour at night. Um, we definitely recommend bladder retraining and pelvic floor muscle exercises to better control the bladder. We have found that in people who have sleep apnea or trouble with um, ventilation at night, can have more issues with needing to go to the bathroom at night. And that's because of the way the hormones are secreted um, from the, both the lungs and the heart um, when someone has sleep apnea or chronic lung condition. So controlling those lung conditions and controlling sleep apnea can actually significantly improve someone's quality of night, life at night. 
There are many, many medications that are available to treat urgency symptoms. They work fairly well about 70 to 80% of the time, but they do have some side effects like dryness of the eyes, dry mouth, and constipation, which occur in about 15% of people. Um, sometimes it's just a matter of finding the right medication for the right patient. Um, some patients will have more side effects with um, uh, the anticholinergics than other um, patients. Anticholinergics are the kind of the mainstay of treatment. Um, they um, work uh, on these receptors that are in the muscle of the bladder, and they kind of block the activity in the muscle of the bladder. A lot of these names may be familiar to you, things like oxybutynin, detrol, vesicare, sanctura, toviaz, and nabilex. These are kind of all in the same class. Mirabetric or Mirabegron is a newer medication. Um, it works similarly to the anticholinergics um, in terms of working on the bladder muscle, but they activate that sympathetic response. So they work on relaxing the bladder muscle rather than make, um, uh, blocking a contraction. Um, the side effects here are kind of minimal. About 5 to 10% of people may have an increase in blood pressure, so we check that while they're being treated. Um, another great option for patients that doesn't require medication is something called PTNS, where we can actually stimulate a nerve that's in the leg. That stimulation comes up the leg to the back and that in the same location as where bladder nerves come off of. So this is almost like acupuncture with electrical stimulation. Um, people come in for treatments for 30 minutes once a week for up to three months to see if this is beneficial to them. And then after that, they simply need a treatment once a month. Um, and it works as well as medications. Um, so I strongly recommend this to patients as well if they're able to get into the office um, once a week, which is really the, the main issue with this. Um, side effects are minimal, maybe some irritation from the tiny needle that's placed near the nerve. Now we go to more advanced therapies for urge and urgent continence. Uh, sacral modulation, again, we've talked about using physical therapy and medications to work on the muscles. There's also the nerves um, of the bladder that can be worked on. Um, so there's a pacemaker for the bladder, which we actually implant um, a wire um, down next to the bladder nerves in the back and hook that up to a battery. Uh, the battery lasts anywhere from three to seven years, and then we come back to the operating room and change out the battery if the patient still has benefit from this procedure. Uh, and that's kind of what it looks like. We can also do something called Botox or onibotulinum toxin injections directly into the bladder. Again, Botox works by relaxing the muscles, so that's why you see people using it for their face and around their, um, uh, around their lips. Um, neurologists are using Botox a lot for people who have headaches related to um, neck muscle and um, head muscle contractions. Um, and they're also using it a lot for patients who have um, a kind of a chronic contractions. Um, of their upper extremities or lower extremities. And we found that um, by injecting small amounts of Botox in the bladder, we can actually relax the bladder muscle more so that people have more capacity of the bladder and aren't having as much urgency. So it's a very effective treatment. There's a study currently going on to compare both this, the pacemaker to the bladder, to the Botox treatment. We'll kind of see which one weighs out in terms of being um, uh, more comfortable for patients, easier to undergo, and lower cost. 
So that was all for incontinence. Briefly for prolapse, um, as um, Bevan mentioned, there are ways that we stage prolapse so that we know how far down um, the vaginal walls are falling, and we can um, kind of use that information to tell patients um, uh, how severe their prolapse is and how beneficial surgery might be for them. Again, these are reminders of the organs um, and how they uh, descend uh, with bearing down. Treatment options, uh, we talked about simply observing if it's not causing significant symptoms. You can also do Kegel exercises, which helps with symptom relief. And then there are things like pessaries, which look very similar to... um, Uh, the uh, incontinence dish that I showed earlier. There are multiple uh, shapes of pessaries. It depends on what walls are falling down, uh, and that's how we'll um, decide which pessary to use. Um, There's no increased rate of infections with using pessaries. Patients do have increased discharge, but the more frequently they remove it and clean it, the less discharge they'll have. This is a great strategy for someone who cannot undergo surgery or does not want to go through surgery, um, but wants symptom relief from the bulge and the pressure. I have many, many patients who use this, um, including women in their 90s, 98 years old, things like that, who come in. um, Maybe they've lost some hand dexterity, and so our nurses will then help them take it out, clean it, put it back in so that it's comfortable. There are multiple surgeries for prolapse. Uh, one surgery um, is called the sacrocopalpexy. Um, this is where we take um, small pieces of mesh, attach it to the front and back walls of the vagina, and then take that piece of mesh and attach it to the tailbone. In essence, what we're trying to do is lift the vagina and restore the anatomical position of the vagina. This is um, um, probably the most effective surgical treatment for the problem. There are other surgeries where we can take the top of the vagina and attach it to strong ligaments nearby using the patient's own tissues, so that's without mesh. These are less effective surgeries, but avoid any problems with mesh or foreign body. So uh, the two main surgeries are sacrospinous ligament fixation and uterosacral ligament fixation. So we'll move on to um, pelvic pain management. Um, For muscle-related pelvic pain, we have many different options, including anti-inflammatory medications. We can even give a patient Valium suppositories that that can be placed in both the vagina or the rectum um, to help relax the pelvic floor muscles locally. And this is a great way to avoid some of the sedating effects of um, the muscle relaxant. Of course, we recommend physical therapy. Um, In addition to doing trigger point releases with physical therapy, we can actually inject those trigger points with either lidocaine or an anti-inflammatory like a a steroid to try to calm down the inflammation that's in that trigger point. And that can be done in the office, into the pelvic floor muscles, or in the operating room. And here we go. Botox comes back. It's going to be the miracle drug for our generation. We can actually inject... Um, Botox into the pelvic floor muscles to give a lot more relaxation for the patient. For nerve pain, we kind of have to go to more medications uh, like lidocaine therapy, um, medications that modulate nerves, um, so uh, things like gabapentin and amitriptyline. These, some of these are actually low-dose antidepressants that work on the nerves um, in, uh, uh, in the 
uh, pelvis. Um, we can also inject um, an anesthetic around the pudendal nerve, which is a nerve that innervates all of these muscles in the external part of the vulva. So if someone has chronic burning and pain of the vulva and of the pelvic floor, we can actually um, inject close to the pudendal nerve through the vagina. There are electrical stimulators and there are some surgeries, but they um, are often done for the refractory cases. That was a whirlwind. <laughs> Thank you for um, um, uh, for your attention through all of that. Um, we have some resources uh, through the Center for Urogynecology and Pelvic Health, which is the division I'm part of. Um, we have multiple providers, including two nurse practitioners and, of course, our lovely um, physical therapists, um, and uh, some more resources there. Here are references. I'm going to invite um, Nikita and Bevan back up here so we can answer some questions. Um, we're happy to answer individual questions afterwards um, for privacy. Um, and wel welcome your feedback as well. Thank you. Yes. So we, um, uh, oh, I think this is okay here. Um, so um, as Nikita pointed out in the beginning in the anatomy section, um, men and women have the same pelvic floor muscles. And so the same uh, treatments can be utilized to, to address male pelvic floor issues as well. So men can present with... Um, similar findings of frequency, pain with um, burning sensation with urination, um, and if they don't find an active infection, they would benefit from the same treatment. So we may do some uh, manual treatment to the superficial or deep layers of the pelvic floor, um, there, as well as the same um, pelvic floor training that we talked about to gain more control of the bladder. So it's really the same treatment applies to men as well. Uh, would you go over on the inhalation and exhalation, mm -hmm. which uh, you were talking about releasing? So basically, as you saw in the video, if you can imagine that your diaphragm's here and your pelvic floor is here, as you inhale, the lungs fill with air and the diaphragm descends, and the pelvic floor also descends. So it kind of does that hammocking stretch. As you exhale, the, diaphragm, uh, the, lungs, um, the air escapes the lungs, the diaphragm ascends, and then the pelvic floor also ascends. So we're using that same uh, strategy. And so what I say is sort of inhale, smell the roses, relax, right? And then exhale, and uh, like you're blowing out the candles, and you Kegel at the same time. So E and E, exhale and effort go together. Yes. Does that help? Um, I've heard it described by physical therapists as pelvis actually moving, um, being out of place, 
-hmm. and that being the voice of back pain and other kind of fascial pain. And, um, and that can be changed in a single session with certain exercises. Yes. Yeah, so the, the, um, one of the studies that um, I looked at um, showed that uh, men and women who have chronic pelvic pain have a much higher frequency of this pelvic asymmetry. So one um, side of the pelvis can be higher. So if, if they're lying on the exam table, it'll actually look like one leg is a little bit longer than the other. But it's, it's a... Um, <laughs> Sorry, it's uh, what we call a functional leg length difference. It's not a true leg length difference. And the way we correct this, um, we use what's called a muscle energy technique. So we activate the muscles um, that attach to the pelvis in opposite directions, going back and forth. Um, and then we can show patients how to do this themselves. It's quite simple. Um, and sometimes they will need to do this on a somewhat regular basis initially. And then as they strengthen and stabilize the muscles around the pelvis, that can be maintained. We just want to push up. The IBS was mentioned at some point. That's kind of a, like a wild card in, in all this kind of, It just makes everything more complicated. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I, IBS does make things complicated. Um, if we're talking specifically about pelvic pain, patients will often describe more symptoms in their constipation cycle of the IBS. Managing uh, both the diarrhea and the constipation episodes with daily fiber intake can actually help. For diarrheal episodes, it'll help form the stool. For constipation episodes, it'll help soften the stool. So oftentimes, we'll first try to regulate um, patients' bowel movements um, to help tackle that aspect of the pelvic pain. hope that answers your question. Yeah. So I actually mention it early. Um, when I talk to patients, I talk to them first about bladder irritant reduction, caffeine reduction, because I've actually cured many, many people of this problem. Um, I feel bad for my husband, but he's like my primary uh, example of reducing caffeine use and leading to improved bladder function. So, so definitely bladder irritants is number one. Then number two, I talk about exercises, medications, and PTNS, kind of all being sim very similarly effective and really dependent on what the patient uh, can do in their lives. Uh, physical therapy requires time and, uh, and a mental ability to be there, medications, you have to deal with the side effects, and PTNS is a weekly treatment. So it really depends on the patient to decide what they want to start first. Sorry, it's percutaneous tibial nerve stimulation. This is the acupuncture electrical stimulation treatment um, I talked about where we can kind of modulate the nerve, uh, nervous um, nerve activity in the leg nerve, which actually helps the bladder nerve. Is overactive bladder an actual medical definition, or is it, act, is it actually something that's not just a description of a, of a symptom, but a real problem? Yeah, so um, it is a clinical diagnosis, overactive bladder. Um, we can uh, trace its origins, though, back to um, a pharmaceutical advertising. Um, but, um, <laughs> but since then, it is an actual um, diagnosis. And the diagnosis really is 
someone's perception that they're going more often than usual or that's normal for them. Um, so it's usually a change in someone's lifetime of, of the amount of the number of times they're going to the restroom, whether it's in the daytime or at night, um, and can be associated with incontinence episodes. So it's kind of an overarching term. Just a follow-up. Yeah. What, like, for, for nighttime mm-hmm. urination, mm-hmm. what would overactive bladder it would be needing to go more often. So um, the average person can go up to one time at night, and that's considered normal. More than once is considered abnormal. It's disruptive to our sleep cycles. And so the overactive bladder piece is that the bladder is spasming in the middle of the night, waking the patient, and sometimes going, and causing them to actually have an accident without their control. Grace? I read that you don't wake up Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, go for it. So I usually clarify that question with patients. I say, is the bladder waking you up at night, or are you waking up and then you have to go to the bathroom? Right. So it's important to know the difference because yeah. it's, well, yeah. I mean, I'm, I just read that. I yeah. Right. Yeah. You're right. But if it happens during the day also where someone's going more frequently than normal, then it's most likely the bladder waking them up at night. Um, So the question was that uh, we talked about in one of our slides that um, to avoid bicycling, to place pressure, because it places pressure on the perineal area, but if you avoid biking, then does it, then uh, do you not get incontinence? Does that right? Oh, does it cause incontinence? Sorry, I said that wrong. Yeah. Well, the, I brought up the bicycle riding um, on this section. I was talking about uh, changes in the vulvar tissue for women postpartum or postmenopausal when there's decrease in estrogen and the vulvar tissues are um, thinner and more easily irritated. So that direct pressure on the perineal tissue can be irritating. So that's the time that we would recommend to um, consider modifying how often they're on the bike or to not do it. Um, I don't know of a link with um, bike riding with incontinence. Um, so it's more just um, to prevent irritation to the vulvar tissues if that's a problem. So we do see that our we do see that our cyclists uh, tend to be more susceptible to pudendal neuralgia, like the nerve-related pain. So again, it has to do with the pressure that's placed there. So sometimes that burning, like she was talking about, so if you cycle a lot, you could be susceptible to more the pain, like the nerve pain, um, but with incontinence, not typically, no. And that's men and Men and women. That's actually a great question because we get that all the time. Um, And like you saw in one of my slides, there was a study that suggested 35 to 80. I've seen a study that says you need to be about in the 60 zone, 60 Kegel zone to really be at the strength uh, range. But really, it's very dependent on our exam. So 
first of all, I've got to know that they're able to do it correctly. So you know how I stress the importance of the form, and we're really sticklers for form. So if the patient can only do, you know, three good ones then I might start with just three Kegels and doing it, you know, uh, perhaps several times a day if I'm going for a strength goal. But we do doze our exercises, the reps, based on whether we're going for strength, whether we're going for endurance. There are both fast and slow twitch fibers in the pelvic floor. So sometimes we want the quick ones. They're going to kind of help you on the way to the bathroom. Sometimes we want the slow endurance holds because we want it to hold you up all day if you have maybe a prolapse or something. Um, So it's very varied, but there can be if you already started off a little bit more tight or hypertonic and you were overdoing these remember my bicep example you could do them and in the muscle it's not really making a change so it's important that the assessment is an important piece to help us dose that and everybody's is a little bit different just like exercise for any other part of the body um but you know our studies have some zones within them and you know she talked about the study where there you needed a lot more for the prolapse um so we do it very individualized but and we're always monitoring symptom improvement so i know that's gray and it's not really answering your question but it is it depends yeah and i was just going to add one last thing that um we always talk about the importance of equal uh, or adequate relaxation after each contraction. So if someone's doing a five-second contraction, they should relax for 10 seconds. Generally, you want to double the amount of time that you're contracting um, in terms of the relaxation so that, like the example, so the muscle can fully lengthen before you contract again. So people often, often, you know, put emphasis on the contraction part, but not enough emphasis on the relaxation. Um, yeah, so the question is just about um, prevention and, um, you know, for preventing these issues. So other than for people who have an active problem, you know, what would be a good preventative program? I mean, ideally, we would have people see their physical therapist like you see your dentist, you know, every six months. And we can assess your pelvic floor and give you um, a program to work on. Um, but um, certainly, I think... You know, it's very helpful to do Kegel exercises when they're supposed to turn on. You know, they're supposed to turn on when we lift, when we um, stand up, when we sit down. You know, those simple things, uh, people can incorporate uh, pelvic floor contractions when they're um, supposed to turn on. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> the, tr- the tricky bit is uh, the insurance covered sometimes. So if you are going through insurance, we typically do need a diagnosis code associated with it and a referral from an MD. Um, so having said that, there are public PTs, you know, in the area that are cash pay, for example, and where the insurance may not be as much of an issue and preventative care might be more doable. 
um, but we are coming up to our time. Um, so after this, we'll have to wrap up our formal session, and then we can take questions. But yeah. Commissioner. Yeah. Um, I was just going to add that there have been studies looking at um, women postpartum with a physical therapy regimen postpartum, and that has been linked to improving um, or lowering rates of stress incontinence um, up to a year after delivery. Um, those studies were done in Europe where things can be repeated and studied uh, widely, um, but I think that is, that is something somewhat of a goal, I think, in women's health overall. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.